Now, the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the Lord and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts described, prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, Be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry, and to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, See, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I showed no concern for them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each brother or sister saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will forgive their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. By saying a new covenant, he has declared that the first is obsolete and what is obsolete and growing old is about to pass away. Well, let me pray as we dig into that for a few minutes. Lord, would what you say through your word be what remains with us today? By your Holy Spirit, would you show us what it means to respond in repentance and faith to the good news of Christianity? And so please, would we be equipped by you to go out with this good news to others? Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus is better. Uh, he is better than, than all the people, all the dreams, all the hopes, all the religions, all the ideas that you might be tempted to put your trust in. Jesus is better. He, he is better than anyone you can imagine. He is better than anything you could want. That is one of the great claims of Christianity, isn't it? And it is something that the whole book of Hebrews says again and again and again. See, if you've been here when you've been looking at this series in Hebrews, you've probably spotted that. The writer says that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than temples and priests and rituals. Better than anything. Whatever you might be tempted to put your trust in, Jesus is 
better. See, if you're a Christian today, I hope that you have experienced that that is true in your life. If you are not a Christian, please hear that this is exactly what Christianity claims. That Jesus is better than anything, anyone, anything at all that you might be tempted to depend on. That you might think will make your life worth living. Uh, A little bit of my background. When I was a teenager, my goal in life, the thing that I thought would bring me happiness and joy and contentment, was money. I thought if I just get loads and loads and loads of money, I will have everything I want. And basically that meant I would have a really big house in a nice place, ideally with a swimming pool. Do you know what? I even used to draw pictures of of this ideal mansion with a swimming pool and a go-kart track and all kinds of crazy ideas. But do you know what? I didn't really want to work hard. So I had a cunning plan. I will marry someone who's already loaded. (laughs) And then I don't have to bother with all of that hard work of, of earning money. I'll just have it. Aren't there plenty of people who put their trust in money? Or countless other things. It might be the holidays, the cars, the, the good lifestyle that, that money can get you. Well, well, thankfully, before I wasted my life chasing after that, God showed me that Jesus is better. That, that trusting in Jesus and his plans is much, much better than chasing after money. And so I married Jen instead. And Jen is not loaded. <laughs> And we don't have a big enough house in a nice area. We live close-ish to some, but actually instead we live in a small, pretty badly built house on a former council estate in an area that plenty of our friends think we were mad to have moved to. We don't have a pool. We don't even have a paddling pool at the moment because the one that we used to have burst. But we wouldn't change it for the world. Because Jesus is better. And we have found that following him and what he calls us to do brings more joy and more contentment than anything else. We have plenty of friends who, who do go chasing after money. Who are always looking for that next promotion, that next house to live in that's maybe a little bit bigger, that extra car, that little bit more space. And they are not satisfied. They are never satisfied. In fact, you hear honest in, in interviews with, with the super rich around the world and very often it is clear that all the money in the world does not buy happiness. There are plenty of people who still trust in money or, or other things instead of Jesus who think that this thing is what is the best thing in the world. But whatever we might be tempted to chase after, maybe it's not money for you, maybe it's It's power or or a particular relationship. Maybe it's influence or or sex or fame or holidays or gadgets or possessions or friendships. A better job, a better car, a different husband or wife. Whatever they might be, Jesus is better. Uh, The whole of Hebrews is hammering that home to us again and again and again. And we need to be reminded again and again and again because we are so forgetful. I know I am anyway. 
If we're not regularly reminded that Jesus is better, we will start slipping and tracing after the wrong things instead of following Jesus. And chapter 8 is no different. Here in our passage, we are particularly being told that Jesus is a better high priest of a better covenant. Now, the first five verses will particularly show us that he is a better high priest. Verse 7 to the end will then compare the, the, the old covenant brought to Moses at Mount Sinai with the new covenant that Jesus brings. And, and verse 6 in the middle bridges those two parts together. Jesus is a better high priest of a better covenant. So, so let's dig into those first few verses. Jesus is a better high priest... So trust his sacrifice. Let me read verses 1 to 6 to us again to remind us. Now the main point of what is being said is this. We have this kind of high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. A minister of the sanctuary. And the true tabernacle that was set up by the laws and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it was necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he wouldn't be a priest, since there are those offering the gifts prescribed by the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle. For God said, be careful to make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry. And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. You see, here we have Jesus being compared and contrasted to the Israelite high priests with their tabernacle and their gifts and their sacrifices. Now, I don't know how good your knowledge of the Old Testament sacrificial system or Jewish offerings is. So let me try to give you a brief overview. God is holy. God is perfect. He is the uncreated creator of all things. He never does anything wrong. He is pure goodness and perfection. God made the world and everything in it, and that includes us. From the very first people, Adam and Eve, right through to you and me here today, God made us. We were originally perfect. And yet, from those very first people, right through to you and me today, we all do wrong. We fail to live up to God's perfect standards. In the language of the Bible, we all sin. And that creates a problem. A perfect God cannot mix with an imperfect people. God's perfect holiness would destroy us. A little bit like if we tried to fly too close to the sun, we'd get burnt up, destroyed. God's glorious holiness will do that to sin and sinful people. And so God set up a system to allow people to come close-ish to the holy God. He set up the tabernacle, which later became the temple and the priest and the whole sacrificial system. 
And if you read all about that in the Old Testament, especially the first five books, you will see all of the details. But I say it allowed us to come close-ish because even then there were very clear limits to how close sinful people could come to the holy God. You see, the word tabernacle, it's here in our passage, isn't it, in verse 5, it literally means the the dwelling or, or, or the presence. It was a great big tent and courtyard system that was the symbol of the presence of God in the middle of his people. But it was also a symbol of that ongoing separation. Because even with this tabernacle in the centre of of where they all camped around outside, people could not come too close. The priests and the Levites, they were allowed to enter into the courtyard where they would ceremonially wash and put on their particular robes and and submit the gifts and sacrifices of the people. And there were a lot of gifts and sacrifices needed. If you ever have a, have a read-through, particularly in, say, Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you'll see again and again and again offerings for sins, offerings for thanksgiving, offerings for wrongs that are done on purpose, offerings for wrongs that are done without even realising it, grain offerings and oil offerings and wine offerings and animal offerings, a never-ending stream of offerings to allow sinful people like you and me close-ish to the presence of the Holy God. But even then, only close-ish. Because even, even then, the sacrifices are offered in, in the courtyard and only the priests were sometimes allowed into the tabernacle itself. Into a room called the, the holy place. And they would go in, they would, they would keep sort of these ceremonial lamps lit and, and make sure that there was bread on, on the table at all times and light incense. But even then, that wasn't the centre of it. They were still separated from the symbolic presence of God. And even the priests weren't allowed in, except the high priest. And only the high priest was allowed into the central room, not just the holy place, but the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And even then, they were only allowed in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And even then, only after going through all kinds of extra sacrifices and offerings and washings to be ceremonially clean enough to enter the presence of a holy God. The high priest, the priests, the tabernacle, the gifts and the sacrifices were all a never-ending cycle offering everything that was needed to allow a people close-ish to the holy God. But look down at verse 5 again with me. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was warned when he was about to complete the tabernacle, for God said, be careful that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Even in this tabernacle tent, where, where the people were not allowed too close to the presence of a holy God, well, that was only ever a picture, a, a shadow, a, a copy. They weren't even allowed that close to the presence of a picture or a copy or a shadow of the Holy God, let alone to come truly close to the presence of the Holy God who is in heaven. See, Hebrews reminds us, doesn't it, the true tabernacle of God, the true presence dwelling of the Holy God is in heaven. And that has always been the case. And actually, even right back to Moses, that was what was being told. You're, you're only building a pattern. 
a shadow of the reality. Moses knew that it was just a pattern. And of course, that doesn't mean it's not incredibly important, does it? Patterns and pictures and shadows are really brilliant. Uh, if I had had, well, probably about 20 years to be able to, a perfect copy of Mount Everest here to show you, you would be impressed, wouldn't you? A, a model scale, a scale model of somewhere like Mount Everest can show you what a mountain is like, can show you how, how impressive it is, how intricate it is, it can show you where to climb. But then once you go to Mount Everest, you don't need the picture anymore, do you? You don't need the model once you have the real thing. And that's what Hebrews is showing us, is that you had this pattern. You've had this shadow, but now Jesus has come, you have the real thing. You don't need that model anymore. Jesus has come. Jesus is the high priest who doesn't serve in a shadow. Jesus serves in the real tabernacle doesn't he look at verse one and two again now the main point of what is being said is this we have this kind of high priest who sat down in the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and the true tabernacle that was set up by the lord and not man you see jesus is a better high priest because he serves in the true tabernacle in heaven and he has made his offering. You see, on earth, the priests and the high priests, it was a never-ending cycle. They have to go and go and go and offer and offer and offer. But Hebrews has already told us Jesus' single offering is enough, once and for all. So he can sit down, finished. See, I don't know about you, but... Whenever I've read the Old Testament and read about the sacrificial system, I've always wondered, did the Israelites really think that, that this animal was a substitute for me? Did they really look at a pigeon and think, oh yeah, if that can die in place of me, is that enough? Did they really think that the, the blood of goats and bulls and pigeons was enough as a fair substitute? If the wages of sin is death, is the death of a lamb enough of a substitute for my death? But Jesus' sacrifice is different, isn't it? Because Jesus doesn't just offer an animal, or, or lots and lots of animals. Jesus' sacrifice is himself. And of course that's enough. If the, the wages of sin is the death of a man, then the death of a man as a substitute is enough. Only Jesus isn't just a man, is it? Is he? The substitute of a sinful man, substituted by a perfect man, of course that's enough. More than that, the substitute of a, a sinful man or, or a woman or, or child for a perfect God in human flesh man. Because Jesus isn't just a good man, or, or, or a great man, or a perfect man. Jesus is God the Son, taken on human flesh. If we think that maybe a pigeon isn't enough as a substitute for a human, then we also maybe should recognise that God the Son is enough of a substitute for all of us. The scale of the sacrifice Jesus offers 
is enough for all of us. That's why he can die and he can rise again on the third day because death has been defeated. The payment is complete. And it is why once he ascended to heaven, he was able to sit at the right hand of the Father, finished. Perhaps you know that when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. That was the curtain that that divided the most holy place from the holy place. It was a symbolic, it was symbolic of the separation between God and man. And at the death of Jesus, it rips. Because no longer can we only get close-ish to a holy God. Through Jesus, our great high priest's perfect sacrifice, the separation between God and man is gone. We can approach the throne of grace with absolute confidence. Not because I've done enough, but because Jesus has paid it all. Jesus is a better high priest. He offers a better sacrifice And he is seated now at the right hand of the throne of heaven. And so we can trust his sacrifice, can't we? Now now my guess is that none of us here today are particularly tempted to try to start to follow the Israelite sacrificial system. I mean, you'd have trouble because I'm not sure that there is a temple in Jerusalem that any of us can go and offer sacrifices in at the moment. But that was the particular temptation of those original heroes of this letter to the Hebrews. It had been their background. They had probably spent their whole lives learning this is the way to get close to God. Do this and you will get close to God. Offer this sacrifice. Do this. Do this. And so their temptation will have been so easily to begin to slip back into it. Possibly to think, oh, of course, I trust in Jesus. I probably should offer a few sacrifices as well, just to keep God happy. Oh, of course I believe in grace. But I've got to rely on my own efforts as well. And though probably none of us are are trying to offer bulls and goats and and pigeons and doves, we can be very tempted to slip back into making our own sacrifices to try to get close-ish to God. Maybe it's your money. Maybe it's your particular service. Oh, the way I get close to God is that that I offer seven hours a week volunteering in the community. Maybe it's even attending church. The way I get close to God is that I am there every Sunday. I make sure I pray for at least five minutes every day. I'm climbing up those steps to heaven. Now, don't get me wrong, those are good things. But we need to ask ourselves, deep down, am I relying on my offerings, on the things I do? Or am I trusting in Jesus' perfect offering completely? Maybe we don't go taking our offerings to a a separate high priest who wears special robes, quite like the Hebrews were as well. That's the person that you go to to get you close to God. But actually, aren't there plenty of people that we might look to in our own lives? Aren't there countless spiritual guides and gurus that say, oh, come and follow me and I will teach you how to get close to God? Maybe it's someone you follow online or watch their YouTube videos. Maybe it is even the elders here. 
And again, I don't want to say it is necessarily wrong to listen to those people, but the question is, is where is our hope? Am I depending on Steve to get me to heaven or on Jesus? If you are a Christian, you do not need anyone else to speak to God on your behalf. You don't need anyone else to mediate between you and God. You have Jesus, our better high priest, our perfect high priest. Of course, if you are a Christian, you need to be committed to a local church with suitably qualified elders and deacons because Jesus commands it. Not because that is a work that you need to do to get into heaven. We can trust in Jesus' sacrifice. It is enough. And if you're not a Christian, well, you too can trust in that same sacrifice. Um, A friend of mine on our estate told me relatively recently that she would love to be a Christian. But she needs to sort her life out first. That's wrong. No, a Christian isn't someone who's sorted. A Christian isn't someone who's kind of sorted their life out and then can go to Jesus. And I hope that if you spent more than five minutes with Christians, you realise just how not sorted we all are. No, a Christian is someone who knows they are not sorted, who knows how bad they are, but who trusts in Jesus alone to save them. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved the Bible tells us. That is an invitation for all of us. We can depend on Jesus, our better high priest alone. We can trust his sacrifice. But not only is he a better high priest, he brings a better covenant. And so we can believe his promises. Look at verse 6 again. But Jesus has now obtained a superior ministry... And to that degree, he is the mediator of a better covenant, which has been legally enacted on better promises. Now, now don't be confused by, by the now, as if at one point Jesus was inferior, but now he's superior. Uh, it's simply saying that there was a time before Jesus' earthly ministry began. This great rescue through Jesus on the cross was planned by God in Trinity before the world began. But before Jesus came to earth as a human baby, as far as we were concerned, the only ministry that could bring people to God was the ministry of the priesthood and the sacrifices through the tabernacle. But when Jesus came and took on human flesh, when he died that death on the cross and rose to life again, well, that proved in history that his ministry is infinitely superior. And so just as his priesthood is superior, so is the covenant that he brings. But what actually is a covenant? It's not a word we use all that much, is it? Well, in some ways, a covenant is a promise. Uh, Maybe here at Bethel you have a membership covenant. Or sometimes people talk about the covenant of marriage, don't they? That promise to have and to hold for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health till death do us part. But actually, a covenant, when the Bible is going to, is much more serious than maybe we would view a promise. It is a sure, certain, absolute promise. 
In fact, thinking about marriage, isn't it sad how, how actually we think of marriage, maybe the Bible says marriage is a covenant, but when we look at marriage around us, it's something that people view for richer, for poorer, in sickness and health, until I change my mind. And actually that makes us think less of God's promises. God's promises are sure, he won't change his mind, he won't divorce us, give up on us. God will never break his covenant. When God makes a covenant, it in fact is as certain as if it had already happened. And so when Jesus comes, bringing this new covenant, or we can believe his promises. Uh, Look at verse 7. If that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second one. But finding fault with his people, he says, look, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by their hands to lead them out of the land of Egypt. I disregarded them, says the Lord, because they did not continue in my covenant. You see, the old covenant he's talking about here is is the covenant that God made with Moses and the Israelite people on Mount Sinai after rescuing them from slavery in Egypt. Maybe you remember the Ten Commandments. All of that time, this wonderful promise, this covenant that God made. But Hebrews tells us there was a problem. There was a fault with this covenant. But don't get me wrong, he is not saying that there was a fault with God. No, the fault is all with the people, isn't it? They didn't keep it. You see, to very briefly summarise what this covenant was, it was, if you obey me, I will bless you. And then, of course, the counter to that was, if you don't obey me, I won't bless you. In fact, I will curse you. There was action on both sides required. And, unsurprisingly, God kept his part of the bargain. God keeps his promises but the people failed. The people broke the covenant. It's a human problem. It's sin rearing its ugly head again. Right from Adam and Eve to us today. Whenever we're given a rule to follow by God, we can't do it. Don't eat the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden, Adam and Eve were told. And what did they do? They ate the fruit. Deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me, we're told. And what do we do? We put ourselves first instead of Jesus. Each and every one of us, we fail to do what God tells us. The problem with this covenant given to Moses at Sinai wasn't God, wasn't the covenant. It was the people. You see, if I went out and robbed a bank, I can't say... It was the law's fault for making it illegal. Can I? That's just not how laws work. No, it would completely be my fault for breaking the law. And that's the same with this covenant. It's not the covenant's fault. It's the people's fault for breaking the law. And God knows it. But God knew that this was always going to be the case. In fact, part of the big point of that Mosaic covenant, the law and the sacrificial system, was ultimately about showing all people... That by our own efforts will fail. Even if every single step of what we're supposed to do is laid out for us, we can't do it. 
And here, in Hebrews 8, we're quoting extensively from Jeremiah chapter 31. So much of all of this is from that time. And Jeremiah was speaking to the people of Israel when they were in exile. And they were exiled because they had broken the covenant. They had had to face the consequences of breaking God's covenant. They were cast out of the land that God had promised them. They were, were away from the temple. They were under foreign rulers who served foreign gods. But even at that low point... God didn't abandon them. They had failed, but God will never fail. And here uh, we're told he promises them a new covenant, a better covenant, that's not dependent on their efforts, but wholly on God's grace. This covenant doesn't say, you need to try harder. It says, I will transform you. I will change you from the inside out so that you can keep it. Look on from verse 10. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And each person will not teach his fellow citizen and each his brother saying, know the Lord. Because they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their wrongdoing and I will never again remember their sins. See, that's the better covenant that Jesus brings. The one that is secured through the cross. It began at Pentecost when God gave his Holy Spirit to each and every Christian. And it continues the moment a Christian believes today. The moment someone puts their trust in Jesus. God gives them his Holy Spirit and begins to transform us in this way. It's a slow progress. You might not notice the changes from day to day. But if you are a Christian, I hope that you can look back over a longer period of time and see the ways in which God is changing you and has changed you. Oh, do you know what? I've been really patient with that guy. But I know that if this had happened to me a year ago, I would have blown my top. putting his law into our minds and writing them on our hearts. Do you know what? I used to only come to church because I had to, because I knew that God said I must. But now I come because I love it to serve the people around me. It can be helpful to look back over longer periods of time to see that evidence of the Holy Spirit at work in changing us. It can also sometimes be really helpful to have other people who can point out that in our, in our lives. Talk to other people, other Christians that you know. Maybe a challenge for after the service is to find someone and say, I have seen God by his Holy Spirit changing you, writing his law on your heart and in your mind. See, that transformation has already begun with every Christian, but we need to not get, away, get ahead of ourselves. It is not finished. It will not be finished until Christ, Christ returns or calls us home. You are not perfect yet. I am not perfect yet. Actually, if we claim we are, we're deceiving ourselves. No, this is not an excuse to sin, though. But it does mean that when we fail, when we still don't live up to God's standards, when we still fail to do all that Jesus commands of us, we don't have to despair. 
we can simply go back to the cross and ask for forgiveness knowing that Jesus is faithful. See, Jesus brings a better covenant. It's not an, if you do this, then I will do that. It is, I will do everything. Trust me. God is faithful. We can believe his promises. It's grace, isn't it? That's the the word that we use for this. God's riches at Christ's expense, sometimes we use it as an acronym for. And grace is, is reminding us this is all a gift of God through Jesus. I will do everything. I will rescue you. I will transform you. We simply need to believe it. To receive it, to, to rest in that wonderful promise. We don't need to fall into thinking that we have to somehow earn our way into God's good books now. You can't do it. You won't do it. But also you don't have to do it. Yeah, You see, in, in lots of ways, the gospel of Christianity is offensive, isn't it? Because the gospel says, you are a sinner and you can't do anything about it. And none of us like to hear that. We like to say, no, no, I'm good. I can do enough. I can stand on my own two feet. But Jesus says, you cannot. But he also says, you do not have to. You can rely on me. Trust me. I have done everything. Can we humble ourselves before him? Will we believe, trust those promises? Jesus is enough. He's a better high priest who brings a better covenant for us. We can trust his sacrifice. We can believe his promises. It's a comfort if you're a Christian. It's an invitation if you're not a Christian. So let me pray that God, by his Holy Spirit, would comfort and would bring us to know Jesus.